Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause once again to just be reminded of your goodness, even as we just heard right now, and your saving work. And Lord, we're reminded of your goodness, even in the difficulties that you allow us to go through, to live well under in the power of your Spirit. And Lord, this morning we do lift up our brother, Lord Kevin Roberts, and his family, who is in the hospital that you would have your hand upon him and comfort and encourage our brother and give the doctors wisdom as they, Lord, treat him, comfort his dear wife and his kids, Lord, who are grieving and who are prayerful and dependent upon you for the life of their husband and their dad. Help us to be people of prayer. Lord, we pray just to continue to just pray for our country, pray for healing in our country, not through political means or social action or any of those things in an ultimate sense, but through the preaching and embracing of the gospel of your son, Jesus. Pray that you would bring your truth to bear upon people's hearts and lives so that they would put their hope in Christ and in nothing else and in no one else. Pray for your blessing upon our time in your word today and Mark as we continue to behold Christ and the implications of living in Christ as believers in this world on mission We pray that you would bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Mark 11. Mark 11, verses 11 through 14 is our passage for this morning. And as you turn there, you might remember that I've mentioned this before, that Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, loves sandwiches, doesn't he? He loves sandwiches. You say, what? I don't mean literal sandwiches. But he loves to use these literary devices where he starts with a particular topic and then in the middle moves to another particular theme or topic and only to return to his initial topic or theme and sort of sandwich that together. And here in Mark 11, he does that again, where he begins in verses, um, or he begins in verses 12 through 14 with this interaction with a fig tree and then moves to the temple in verses 15 through 19 of Mark 11, and then back to the fig tree in verses 20 to 21. This is another one of those Markan sandwiches. And so we're going to be focusing on verses 12 through 14, or verses 11 through 14. And for context, I pulled in verse 11, and we're only going to go to verse 14 today. In a couple of weeks, we'll deal with verses 15 and following But remember the previous context of this particular passage, okay? Remember that on Palm Sunday, Jesus arrived and entered the city of Jerusalem, but he did so not as most people expected, not as most Jews were anticipating. He entered not with great pomp and splendor and luxury and so forth. Instead, he entered like a humble servant king, seated on a donkey. This is not what the common Jew anticipated in Jesus' day, but it was exactly how God had promised through His prophets that His future Messiah, His appointed King, would come some five to seven hundred years before. And so this all transpired just as the prophets had foretold. This transpired in fulfillment of God's faithful promises, where once again we see that God is a faithful God who never goes back on His promises, including those centered on the person and the work of His King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14, I want to talk to us about an important issue that I think this interaction of Jesus with the fig tree points out and highlights for us. And it's the issue of counterfeit spirituality. I've entitled our message, The Danger of of fruitless spirituality. You know, many people boast of great spirituality, but the reality of it is that when you survey their life, they give evidence to more of a sort of fake or phony spirituality that shows itself to be fruitless spirituality. And as we look at Jesus' interaction with this fig tree here, we see this. We're going to learn... That there are things that aren't always what they appear to be on the outside. And this passage will be a sobering reminder to us today, to each of us, to make sure that we are succumbing to, not succumbing to a sort of 
heartless Christianity to a Christianity that that is devoid of, of true, genuine love from the heart. A Christianity that is really counterfeit and not the real thing, that is fake or phony. And we're going to learn this as we look at this particular passage, verses 11 through 14, under three main headings, okay? So the first heading that I want us to consider is the site of the temple in verse 11. The site of the temple. As mentioned, Jesus finally enters Jerusalem in a sort of anticlimactic way. And what's interesting is that Mark doesn't really expand a whole lot on, what, on all that Jesus does as he enters Jerusalem. At least not yet. But we get this little commentary in verse 11, if you notice, that's very significant for us to pay attention to. Verse 11 tells us, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Interesting. He inspected the temple. He examined everything in the temple. He sort of made a mental picture of the activity that was taking place in the central place of worship for the Jews in the Jerusalem temple. And in Luke 19... Verses 41 through 42, we get an even more rounded picture of how Jesus must have been feeling. Because it says in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, that Jesus, as he was arriving to the city of Jerusalem, actually wept over the city of Jerusalem as he saw Jerusalem from a distance. And then he proceeded to predict the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by Rome, which eventually came to pass in A.D. 70, as we know from history. The days will come when this will happen, he says in Luke 19.43. There will be a destruction upon you, Jerusalem. And indeed, it came to pass. And so think about that. What must Jesus have been experiencing already? And now he surveys the temple as he enters Jerusalem. It's already late Sunday night. It's been a full day, and Jesus and his disciples now leave Jerusalem and leave the temple. They return to Bethany Sunday night, about two miles away, perhaps to the home of Martha, Lazarus' sister. And so then Bethany really becomes sort of Jesus' headquarters now for to, when he, as he travels with his disciples back and forth to Jerusalem and then back to Bethany. But just consider for a moment how... Full of emotion, Jesus must have been already. Consider for a moment the Lord's heart. After three and a half years of faithful ministry, finally arriving to his destination, here he is, weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He loves these people. He cares about these people. And then there's this anticlimactic arrival at the triumphal entry, what we know as a triumphal entry, where there are, it's full of fickle, superficial people who really don't mean what they say, most of them. Because Jesus knows their heart. He understands that they really don't mean genuine worship. And then he goes into the temple and sees the materialistic, false spirituality of people in there. What must he have been feeling? He was full of emotion as he travels now back to Bethany, about two miles away, and then is going to return back to Jerusalem. Keep all of this in mind. And so he lays his head at night in Bethany, full of emotion, with a full heart. And now it's Monday morning, and we see, secondly, the symbol of the fig tree. The symbol of the fig tree in verses 12 through 14. Now, it's important for us to understand that there is much in the Old Testament about fig trees. You see, often in the Old Testament, fig trees were were symbolic of God's blessing, of God's favor, of God's prosperity. If you read through the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, as Moses prepares the Israelites to enter the promised land, Moses there in Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 and 8, describes the land by saying this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, 
flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, and here it is, and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Moses says, boy, you guys are going to get spoiled, seriously, lavished by God's blessings in the promised land. These are the kinds of things that will be there, including fig trees, which really became symbolic of of God's abundant blessings, of God's lavish provisions that awaited the people of God, the Israelites of the Old Testament in the land of promise. Conversely, the absence of such things or fruitlessness, not bearing fruit, was symbolic of God's condemnation, of God's judgment upon His people Israel. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah 8 and verse 13, God says about the nation of Israel, when I would gather them, that is the Israelites, says the Lord, there are no grapes or on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. There in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, God is pronouncing judgment on the southern kingdom and specifically Jerusalem. Why? Because they are fruitless. Because they are unproductive, like grapeless vines and figless fig trees. I've examined my people, says the Lord, says Yahweh, though I have greatly blessed them and positioned them for lavish, abundant fruitfulness, they have become unproductive. Fruitless. You see, it's very important to the heart of God that His people, His people whom He's chosen to, to worship Him and to love Him and to serve Him and to be a light to the other nations, that they live out their fruitful purpose of bringing glory to Him by being productive and useful and be a light to the world around us. That was the case for Israel, His ethnic chosen nation. And they had failed to do that. In Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10, as God reminisces about the nation of Israel, listen to what he says about them. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. In other words, initially when I found you and I chose you, you were fruitful. But then what happened? They came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. What happened to Israel? Israel rebelled. They drifted away from God and began worshiping other gods, the Baals. And as a result, God cursed them. God condemned them. God judged His ethnic people, Israel. And later in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 16, God has strong words for Israel. He says, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. In other words, not only are they fruitless, but they are rotten, unhealthy to the very core. From the very root, they are useless. Amazing, powerful words. And so all of this is symbolic language of judgment against God's chosen nation, Israel, for being the recipient of God's lavish blessings, abundant provisions, And yet they had rejected Him and rebelled against His goodness. And so I want you to keep that Old Testament background in mind and the rest of of Palm Sunday and Jesus' sight of the temple and how He's feeling full of emotion. And now look with me in verse 12 where we're told that on the next day when they had left Bethany, this is now Monday morning, the day after Palm Sunday, They embark on their journey back to Jerusalem. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus became hungry. Here's here's yet another evidence of Jesus' true humanity. That fully God, when He came at His incarnation, never ceased to be God. He was also fully human. He took on a human nature. He he added a human nature to to His divine nature during His incarnation. 
And as fully man, he had the same physical needs of a normal human being. He, he experienced emotions. He got tired, mentally weary. And he experienced real thirst, real hunger, just like you and I. And so he becomes genuinely hungry here. And as they walk through various fields, in verse 13 it says, Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. There were many of these trees in Palestine. The, the land was sweet and fertile for such trees to, to thrive in Palestine, in the fertile crescent of that region of the world. These fig trees were anywhere between 20 to 25 feet tall and wide. They were an excellent source of shade because of their size. Fig trees were also an excellent source of food for people. They were healthy and packed with vitamins, as you know. And so Jesus goes over to this tree to partake of its fruit. But look at verse 13. We're told that when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Interesting. Interesting. Some people have read that last part, for it was not the season for figs. And they say, what's up with Jesus? I mean, didn't Jesus know that there wouldn't be any fruit? Mark tells us right there, the season for figs was not yet happening. That happened in June. At this time, it was at least a month or so earlier. It was April, the month of Passover. It's not until June that figs will appear in their fullness. But listen, it was reasonable for Jesus to expect to at least have something to snack on at that time. Because at least at this time, there were buds that were beginning to, to appear as big as, as raisins. And at least you can snack on those things, even though the fullness of ripe figs hadn't come yet until four or five weeks later that would happen. And also, don't you think that Jesus knows this? Jesus knows this. Of course He knows that it is not the time for ripe figs yet. Remember, Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. He's not ignorant of the time or seasons of climate when such things happen. You're talking about Jesus here. And so ultimately, it wasn't even the, it's not even the seasons of the year that ultimately determine the fruitfulness of the tree. It was God Himself who is sustainer and provider, isn't He? It's Him. And remember that Jesus, who is God, is also omniscient. He knows everything. He has 20-20 vision. He's like a divine x-ray machine with razor, laser-like insight. He knows exactly what is in man. According to John 2.24, He knows all things. And so we need to remember to interpret this account by keeping in mind who Jesus is. This is God. He's omniscient. This is Jesus who is divine, who at various points during His humanity chose willingly to exercise His omniscience. And I believe this is one of those times. And so there's something that Jesus sees here about this tree that His disciples or we, the readers, don't see. Coupled with this, again, keep the context in mind. And what happened the previous night, Jesus seeing the temple, the, the place of worship, and we'll soon see that He didn't like what He saw. He zealously cleans house in verses 15 through 19. And then before that, we're told that in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, again, that Jesus wept when He saw the city of Jerusalem from a distance, and then He prophesied about the city's destruction in A.D. 70. All of those factors lead us to recognize that what you have here in this fig tree is an object lesson for His disciples and for us. It is an illustration. It is symbolic of, of His just condemnation against Israel of His day for her evident rejection of her Messiah and genuine spirituality and genuine worship. Please notice... This tree was fruitless. 
It says in verse 14 that he said to it, this was fullness, with fullness of authority, it's almost as if Jesus created the tree, right? May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening, says Mark. Why does Mark mention that little commentary about the disciples that they were listening? Because it was an object lesson for them. And might I say, for us today, who read the gospel according to Mark, did Jesus' cursing of the fig tree come true? Of course it did. Look down in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, this is now Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And so Jesus' authoritative words of judgment had come true. This is, by the way, another miracle by our Lord. Normally his miracles brought life. This time he curses this tree and it comes to pass that the tree dies. Now let's consider thirdly, having looked at this interaction of Jesus with the fig tree, let's consider thirdly the significance for our lives. Okay? The significance for our lives. What's the practical lesson to be learned from our Lord's cursing of this fig tree? Let me ask you, is this just a, a case of our Lord giving into emotionalism? To frustration, to an irrational action of cursing this poor fig tree, this little innocent tree. There's probably tree-hugging people that are looking at this and thinking, what a bad guy Jesus was. What's up with that? Or is there something more? And I think there is. I think a big part of the lesson here is this. Things aren't always what they appear to be on the outside, right? Just consider people whom you've known, who've grown up in the church, and they eventually disappear. Or people who are always around the church, attend the church physically, but you don't see any fruit. You don't see them genuinely worshiping from the heart. You don't see them genuinely serving God by serving other people. You don't see a genuine love for other people. You don't see obedience to God's word. Motivated by love and gratitude for what He's done for them. You don't see those things happening. What's going on? What's going on? They're like this, this fig tree here, aren't they? Here's this fig tree that, that looks good on the outside. That seems promising. It's lush and green and full of leaves. It's positioned well. Planted on the, on the wonderfully fertile Ground of Palestine. At least on the outside, externally speaking, things look good. But upon closer examination by our Lord, what is true of this tree? It is empty, barren, and fruitless. The fig tree is symbolic then of the so-called spirituality of the nation of Israel at the time. Where the nation gave the appearance of great piety beginning with the religious leaders and their great attire that they would wear, lengthened tassels on their garments, looking so great on the outside. The nation gave the appearance of deep devotion. Of They had this amazing temple made of marble and great architecture. And you go on and on and on. It was beautiful in appearance on the outside. The nation had been the recipients of God's abundant blessings. On and on the list goes of the blessings and the provisions of Yahweh, the one true God for Israel and the nation. And yet, they were phony, fake. And later on, on Tuesday, the next day after this passage, it says that Jesus said to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, Woe to you! Woe to you, 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 woe to you. Seven times Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're phony. You're fake. 
For you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You are blind guides of the blind. Curse you, essentially, was Jesus saying to them. You're phony. And then it says at the end of Matthew 23 that Jesus cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who, have, who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. You see, they had become fruitless people. A fruitless nation. Even in the central place of worship. They had become fruitless, like a fruitless tree. Like our Christmas trees, right? Some of us are already getting, putting up our Christmas trees. Mostly real ones, right? Some of us are smarter than me and get fake ones so you don't have to keep buying one every year. But some of us are buying our our real Christmas trees and putting them up. You know, those are nice for a time. You kind of put ornaments on them. You decorate them. You put some lights on them. You fluff them up really well. But eventually they start dying, don't they? They wither. They dry up. Eventually, they're lifeless. They, they're lifeless. They don't bear fruit. And you see, that's how some people are. They're like a, a Christmas tree with ornaments, but no true life. No fruitfulness. Things may good look, on the, look good on the outside. You're doing your religious thing. You're going through the outward motions. You give the appearance of of you are a spiritual person, but you lack love for God and other people and for the lost. You are not worshiping God from the heart. You're not serving the Lord. You're not using your spiritual gifts that you claim to have. And this is the pattern of your life. Everything looks good on the outside. You're going through the motions. The externals look good. You're forcing yourself to come to church. You're doing just enough, just enough to fly under the radar. But there's no genuineness in your life. And you know it. And God knows it. And so that people don't suspect anything, you smile with a happy face at others. But your heart is unchanged unaffected, you're lifeless, and thus fruitless. You don't have Christ. This is the case for some of you who've been around for a long time. Some of you who are here this morning, physically. Some of you who are tuning in online. You've been around for a long time. Maybe you've even grown up in the church. You have the facts right. You have more Bible knowledge than most. So much so that the typical Sunday morning, or any other endeavor, you sit back more like a critic against those who teach God's Word rather than a humble, teachable person who appropriates God's Word to your life. Rather than being a humble learner, you're proud. And this is the pattern of your life. You've been showered with God's blessings through the church over the years, benefited from small groups, um, conferences, classes for equipping you here at Calvary. You've had fellowship with God's people. You stood under the reign of God's blessings through his church. But the good news of Christ coming to save a guilty and condemned sinner such as you has never taken root in your life. You've rejected Jesus and you continue to not kiss the Son. To not kiss the King's hand. Christ. You've never made the truth your own. You've never internalized the truth You've never internalized the gospel and made it your own and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, given your heart to Christ, put your trust in Christ as the only Lord and Savior of your life. This message is for you. Externals don't matter. What God sees is what's in your heart. And Jesus is able to see right through your heart, just like he's able to see to the very core of that fig tree in verses 12 through 14. He sees your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks upon the outward appearance, 
But the Lord looks at where? The heart. So harden your heart no longer. Harden your heart no longer. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God from the heart by putting your trust in Jesus and begin to truly center your life around Jesus Christ. For others of us, we are saved. We know this. You're born again. You trusted in Jesus Christ. You are following Christ. But beloved, I want to remind you today, if you are a believer, that God wants you, believer, Christian, follower of Jesus, who loves Christ, to be fruitful. To be fruitful. Praise God that He has saved us from our sins. Praise God that He's adopted us into His family. Not by anything that we can do or ever can do, but based upon the merits of Christ's finished work alone, His perfect, blameless, sinless life, His atoning death for our personal sins, and by virtue of His resurrection, we are now, by faith in Christ, His children. Amen? He's our Heavenly Father. Not on the basis of anything that we can do, but on the basis of the merits of Christ. He's been gracious to us. He's been merciful to us in Jesus Christ. But listen to me. As a father does with his own children, our heavenly father wants us as his children to be faithful, to be productive, to be fruitful. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, after affirming there in Colossians 1 the, the faith of the Colossian Christians, Paul prays for the Colossian believers in Colossians 1.10 that they would be those who are bearing fruit, continually that is, present tense participle, continually bearing fruit in every good work. So what does fruit bearing consist of? Good deeds. Done as a response to the transforming power of the gospel in your life. We are saved not on the basis of our good works, but unto good works in light of what God has done for us, right? And so God wants us to be fruitful. And that requires us being about good works. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.13, as he anticipates visiting the Roman Christians, Listen to what he says in Romans 1.13. I do not want you, Roman Christians, to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far. Why? Why do I want to come to you? Why do I long to be with you? So that, he says, I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul says, I want to be with you. I want to go visit you finally. Why? Because I want to be fruit-bearing among you. I want to see people come to know Christ in evangelism. I want to edify you and build you up, Roman Christians, so that it all leads to exalting the risen, exalted Christ. It's all about fruit-bearing, Paul says. That's why I long to be with you, Roman Christians. Amazing. God wants fruitful Christians. And we all know that we cannot do this in and of ourselves, right? The only reason why these commands are given to us as believers is precisely because we have the Spirit of God living in us. We've been given life, and by His grace, we are able to obey Him, right? These instructions are not given about fruit-bearing to non-believers. Because a non-believer is lifeless, spiritually speaking. They are the walking dead, spiritually speaking. But a believer, we've been given life by the Spirit of God so that we can obey and be fruitful, you see. We cannot do this on our own. The Lord Jesus said on the night of His betrayal, three days after this, by the way, this particular account in John fifteen four, He says this to His disciples, Abide in Me. Remember, these are His disciples. These are followers minus Judas Iscariot, who's a hypocrite, he's a phony, he's a fake. He says to His disciples, Abide in Me. And I in you, 
as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then listen to this. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Powerful, sobering words, aren't they? I want you to please pay attention to a few things, okay? Believer, if you are to be fruitful, or for all of us, if you are to be fruitful, first, the prerequisite for fruitfulness is that you be in Christ. That you be in Christ. That you be attached to the vine who is Jesus, the life source, the sustainer, the life giver. Question, what's true of a branch that is broken off of a tree. What's true of that branch? It's dead. It's dead. And thus, because it's detached away from that tree, it's fruitless. It's fruitless. It's withering. It's decaying. It's detached from the, from the life source that allows it to bear fruit, Right? And this was the problem with the unfruitfulness of the nation of Israel, as illustrated by the fig tree, wasn't it? Israel rejected God and his Messiah, and thus they were unproductive. Spiritually speaking, they were fake, they were phony, they were unfruitful and fruitless. You cannot bear fruit for God and for his glory unless you are in Christ And even your good works that you do outside of Christ are no more than moralism, which still damns you to hell apart from Jesus, you understand. Even the greatest works, the most noble acts that you can perform outside of Jesus are like filthy rags before before God Almighty. They earn you nothing in the eyes of God. Nothing. But oh... For believers who are in Christ, our good deeds bring glory to God, don't they? They bring glory to our Heavenly Father. So the prerequisite for fruitfulness is that you be in Christ. Second, if you are a Christian, let me ask you this morning, are you abiding in Jesus? Are you abiding in Jesus? Because you see, there's, there's, there's a, a p- positionally we could be saved from our sins. We are justified, positionally speaking. But we are called to live out the implications of our salvation, aren't we? We're called to live this out in the power of the Spirit. And so let me ask you, if you are connected to the vine, are you fleshing this out and abiding in Jesus? To abide means to remain Or to stay connected to Christ. And you know what it points to? It points to our ongoing, vital relationship with Jesus Christ that we are cultivating. How do we do that? How do we cultivate a vital relationship with Jesus on an ongoing basis? First and foremost, by spending consistent time with Him in the Bible, in His revealed Word, right? Reading the Word. Cherishing the Word, delighting in the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word, and obeying the Word of God. And also through prayer, through our ongoing communion and communication with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. Those are the primary means of God's grace. For us to continually, by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, cultivate a vital relationship with Jesus. So are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? By the way, very soon, we're going to be talking about wanting to 
obviously as a church read through the Bible together next year, you're going to see some communication about that, some uh, emails flying out about that and giving you options. One thing that we'd love to point everybody to for Bible reading in 2021 and then some other things that you can do as optional things. Why do we want you to do that? Because that's what good little Christians do. No, because that's how you cultivate a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and you abide in the vine, right? Reading the Word and in prayer. This is a challenge, isn't it? I don't know about you. It's a a challenge. We're living in difficult times. We are such distracted people, always on our gadgets, always wanting to keep up with the latest news, the latest YouTube videos, the latest sports news and so forth. Who liked our posts and who didn't like our posts? Who commented on the posts and who didn't comment on the posts? We're such distracted people. And before you know it, with those things and many other things that are not evil in and of themselves, but they take our hearts away from God, before we know it, what happens? We don't spend time abiding in Christ. We have misplaced priorities. Listen to me. Everybody gets the same amount of time. Failure to plan your life and center your life around Christ is a planning to fail, right? Failure to plan is planning for failure. We have to have foresight. Be deliberate. Be purposeful. Be redeeming the time because the days are evil. You know it's a sin not to redeem the time? You know it's a sin to waste your time? I don't think that clicks for a lot of us. That to not utilize your time for the glory of God and to have misplaced priorities and give your heart to other things above God is actually a sin that we need to repent of. And so if we're going to abide in Christ, we must prioritize our time in the Word. Now some Christians look at this as if this is an individualistic, isolated pursuit of Jesus that they kind of do on their own. And I want to remind us that first and foremost, the Christian life is intensely personal. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is first and foremost, intensely personal, but it is not, I repeat, it is not private, private. It is not private. You've been called into a community, into a church of the redeemed, who are called to gather and scatter on mission here on this earth. Listen to me. You cannot abide in Christ while being disconnected to the church by choice and living in that pattern. You cannot. You're lying to yourself and you're deceiving others around you. Abiding in Christ is a communal pursuit. It is in turn intensely personal, but it's also in community. And so don't tell me I'm growing, I'm bearing fruit, I'm pursuing my relationship with the Lord, but nobody ever sees me. I never reach out to anybody during the week. I don't open my life up for anybody to minister to me. Liar. Liar. If by choice... And as a pattern, you are disconnected to God's people. You are not growing as much as you think you are. Albeit, we do have limitations these days. And there are hindrances and obstacles, at least from a human perspective. But God has called us to even live well under that, hasn't he? And still flesh out biblical Christianity and discipleship. And so thirdly, recognize that Fruitfulness in the Christian life requires ongoing, vital connection to the church. What does this mean? This doesn't mean just attending on Sunday mornings, but actually being engaged with a heart of worship when you sing. Listening to the Word of God humbly so as to appropriate it to your life. Worshiping God from the heart with your brothers and sisters. Fellowshipping, experiencing, and delighting in sweet fellowship with other brothers and sisters on Sunday mornings. What does this mean during the week that you are making maximum effort by the grace of God to be in regular fellowship with other believers and opening up yourself to be edified and to be built into? That's what it means. 
This means looking for opportunities to serve other people, to do good unto others in both attitude and action. The book of Titus is full of admonitions to a network of churches on the, on the island of Crete about the importance of good works unto others, unto other brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Titus 3.1 says that Christians need to be ready for every good deed. That speaks to the eagerness with which we ought to be anticipating serving other people for the glory of God. Titus chapter 3 verse 8 tells us that we who have believed God must be careful to engage in good deeds. And Titus 3.14 says our people, Titus, must learn also to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs. Why? So that they will not be unfruitful. Couldn't be clearer. God wants a productive people, and that happens in community as a church, both when we gather and when we scatter. Amen? See, fruitfulness finds expression in loving service to others for God's glory. And beloved, I recognize that this is a challenge. It's a challenge for me as well. Because I am wired to do the opposite. I am wired to want to read my Bible all day long in secret and just be reading book after book after book after book. I have to force myself by the grace of God to come out of my cave to actually spend time with people and delight in it and love other people. It's hard. And it's also hard, right? Because for some of you who are being so faithful to this, it seems like you serve and you serve and you serve and you give and you give and you give and you invest and you invest and you invest and people don't seem to respond. They don't seem to reciprocate. It doesn't seem like people are being impacted. It doesn't seem like your labors are going forward to get people to actually be fruitful themselves. Can you identify with that? See, a lot of you are lying right now. Again, I know you can, right? It's hard. Listen to Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, and especially to those of the household of the faith. See what he says? Do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. But he recognizes in Galatians 6, 9 that it's easy to lose heart because we are frail. Even as believers living in the power of the Spirit, it's discouraging oftentimes because our labors don't always seem, at least from a human perspective, to be bearing fruit, right? And yet take heart, beloved. Take heart. Sometimes we see the fruit of our grace-fueled labors, In the immediate, but for the most part, it's not until later or maybe never, maybe in heaven someday you will see the fruit of your labors, right? Like my friend who just passed away recently. You know, I remember two specific times with a friend who passed away recently, just about three or four weeks ago, suddenly from a human perspective. I remember at least a couple of times him saying something along these lines to me. Campus, I just don't know oftentimes if all that I'm doing is worth it. I don't know. I'm discouraged. You should have been at his memorial. Oh my goodness. He would have never known. And now in heaven, obviously, he sees God perfectly, and I'm sure he's aware of that fruitfulness. But wow. Maybe that's what it's going to be for us. We don't see the fruit of our labors, of our service, in its purest form unto the glory of God, perhaps until heaven someday. And so Paul says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. In the power of the the Spirit, as you have opportunity, do good unto all men and especially to those of the household of the faith. What are some other ways that we can bear fruit? What are some other ways? Here are some. Ready? Just write these references down. Philippians 4.17 says that we bear fruit by our generous giving. Philippians 4.17 teaches us that we bear fruit when we are not stingy with God's money, but practice generous, consistent giving. 
According to Hebrews 13, 15, we bear fruit when we worship from the heart. Hebrews 13, 15 says that we ought to be continually offering the fruit of lips that gives, give thanks to God's name. So we bear fruit through our worship from the heart. We bear fruit, according to Proverbs 31, 16 and following, through hard work. There in Proverbs 31 and, and at the last verse there, it speaks of the fruit or the product of hard, diligent, hard work and diligent hands. We manifest the fruit of the Spirit, Christ-like character. According to Galatians 5, and 23, how do we know that we're bearing fruit? When we are walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says against such things there is no law. Conversely, when we give into our flesh, to our sinful desires, we become fruitless people, fruitless Christians. We bear fruit, finally, by winning souls for Christ. By sharing our faith and being faithful to, to sharing the gospel. By making disciples. We read about that earlier in Romans chapter 1, right? Paul wants to be amongst the, the Roman Christians so that he might bear fruit amongst them, that he might edify them, build them up, and also proclaim the gospel because he, is, he says, I'm under obligation to both, to everybody to preach Christ. The Jews and Greeks, to the barbarians and everybody, I want to preach Christ and thus bear fruit. So we bear fruit by winning souls for Christ. These are just some examples of what it means to be a fruit-bearing Christian by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, right? Nothing. And so listen, this, the lesson of the fig tree, first and foremost, applied, yes, to the nation of Israel during our Lord's day. They had become a fruitless people from the top down with the religious leaders because of their rejection of Jesus and their false spirituality. They were people of superficial worship, externalistic religion, devoid of heart worship. It applies to them first and foremost. But then the lesson also applies to anyone, anyone who hears these words, that first you make sure that you are truly in Christ, that you've repented of your sins, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Otherwise, any good deed, anything that you try to do, is simply moralism that still damns you. And are those good works like filthy rags before the eyes of God, apart from Christ. And then also for us, for us who have believed, beloved, that we remember is the lesson that God saved us so that we might bear much fruit for His glory in fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen? Close your eyes with me. Father, thank You. Thank You for the finished work of Christ. Thank You for His merits that He has accomplished on our behalf that our King went to the cross and is the great sin-bearer and the one who absorbed your wrath, your just wrath for our sins. Thank you for Christ. And Lord, help us as people to live in the light of that sacrifice. Help us to be fruitful. Help us to be productive. Help us to be useful. Help us to be faithful for your glory, not for our own, in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, that one day, Lord, when we stand before you, you might declare those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.